there's two guys starting a business in a two-story pre-Civil War mule barn. We weren't going to compete against the big guys, but we knew we wanted to do something special. So almost out of self-defense, we made the conscious decision to make incredibly high-end knives using the very best procedures possible. But we, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think one big part of business is you have to be honest with yourself. You have to ask yourself, hey, what am I good at? And what am I not good at? And what don't I know? And if you're honest with yourself, you identify those things and then target those things or create a mission to learn what you don't know or to find somebody else who does, it can serve you very, very well when you're starting a new business. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an incredibly exciting guest lined up for you today. This gentleman is one of the co-founders of an iconic American manufacturing company. He and his partner used to serve the cause of freedom. They're the folks who would fight, bleed, and die so you and I can enjoy the blessings of liberty as Green Berets. And then, once their service to their country was over, they decided to continue to serve through following their passion and their dream in business by opening up one of the most iconic knife manufacturing companies in the entire United States, probably in the entire world. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Curtis Ayavito. Welcome to the show, Curtis. Well, Nikki, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure, my man. It's always good to talk to our, to our brethren in the North. <laughs> always a pleasure to speak to you, my friend. And thank you for your service. And thank you to your partner, Mark, for his. Uh, I don't take that lightly. I know that uh, civilian pukes like us get to do what we do because folks like you are willing to fight, bleed, and die for us. Well, you know, I appreciate that. You know, when folks say thank you for your service, we usually respond with, well, we got paid the whole time. So. <laughs> Not a problem. <laughs> yeah, you got paid. The, the amount of money you got paid is, is nothing compared to what you did, my friend. Uh, well, thank you. It, it still awes me that there's people that are willing to do that. So, Curtis, I know a little bit about you. I know a lot about your company. I know a lot about uh, some of your knives. I own a couple of them. But my listener knows nothing about you. And my listener is an entrepreneur. Most of my listeners are service-based entrepreneurs, but they're folks who are manufacturers and own product companies. I can tell you this. They all have a vision. They all have a dream to take that beautiful purpose that God put inside of them and make it real in the universe. And they listen to this show because they want to learn from you as our expert guest how they can do that better for themselves. But the only way they're going to listen to you is if they get to know you a little bit. They, they, they want to know why they should listen to you. So tell us your story, man. How'd you get to be the great Curtis? <laughs> well, I don't know about great, but, uh, you know, I started out in the service in the United States Marine Corps, of all things. Most folks know me as being in special operations in the Army. But uh, as a young kid, you know, I grew up playing with guns and knives. Now, I know that may not be a popular thing today, but as a young kid and living out in the country in Illinois, we'd strap on a Bowie knife, grab a 22 rifle, 
go out to the woods. And if the parents didn't get a call from the police, everything was good to go as far as they were concerned, as long as we showed up for dinner. So I spent a lot of time. <laughs> so I spent a lot of times with knives and guns as a kid. It, it was just kind of a natural progression for me to join the military. I went in the Marine Corps. I did that for four years. Wanted to go special operations. Eventually, you joined the Army. Went to the Rangers. Jumped into Panama with the Rangers, the Second Ranger Battalion. And eventually, when all Rangers grow up, they they join special forces, right? Hundred so, percent. Uh, they are they are in, in a way special forces, aren't they? <laughs> well, they are. They're, they're part of US SOCOM and, and they're elite infantry type unit. Um, you know, I wanted to uh, join special forces. I did that. Nineteen ninety four. I ended up in uh, first special forces group. Um, every special forces group has a specific region throughout the world they work in. Mine was Asia. And, uh, and I think I was lucky to get it. Ended up at Fort Lewis, did a few years there, worked uh, eventually in a counterterrorism unit in Okinawa as a sniper, where I met my current business partner, Mark Carey. We were both in the same sniper troop, worked together for years. Eventually, you know, towards the end of your career, they catch you and make you go to the schoolhouse to teach what you know before you decide to... Uh, part ways with the military. We did that. We worked at uh, a sniper school, Fort Bragg, called SODIC at the time, the Special Operations Target Interdiction Course. Fantastic job teaching young soldiers how to shoot sniper rifles. It you know, just doesn't get any better. But, you know, uh, eventually, you know, we get old, we get a little fatter, we start looking at retirement, and then uh, there's some big decisions that have to be made. I can tell you for a lifelong service guy, retirement is a scary, scary proposition. Quite honestly, it's your second chance to start a new career. We both ended up working for a ballistic armor corporation here in the States and uh, quickly realized that, you know, business isn't quite as hard as we thought it was. As a matter of fact, it's it's quite a bit like mission planning or, or preparing for a mission in the military. You know, you, you look at risk, you learn how to mitigate risk, you, you take different courses of action, come up with a hybrid, eliminate all your risk and then go for it. So uh, my partner and I uh, retired about the same time, decided we wanted to start our own business. We thought, well, let's just start a manufacturing company. How hard can it be? You know, I think sometimes God loves idiots or they're ignorant. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, other people are doing it. They don't seem all that bright. But, uh, you know, we looked at a few different industries. We did. We looked at different courses of action. Um, we looked at building firearms because sniper rifles is what we knew all our life. We looked at that industry, we realized uh, it took a lot of money and it was a little bit cutthroat. And I had, uh, well, during my time of service, started making knives, uh, custom knives as a hobby for friends and for myself to use in the field. Um, we looked at that industry and, and I got to tell you, it was almost cottage. And the amount of people that were willing to help us enter the industry were numerous. So uh, you know, we did three courses of action, picked the one going in the knife industry, and then it just kind of grew from there. There's so much gold that you just gave us, and I'd like to unpack a little bit of it. So sure. first thing you said was you grew up around knives and guns. And it's a little bit politically incorrect, but there's still a lot of people that grow up around knives and guns. Knives in particular is something, I say every man, every woman should have a knife. They're very useful I tools. Do. You can use them in everyday life. I mean, number one, with these crazy clamshell packages that are on everything these days, you need a bloody <laughs> knife to cut them open. <laughs> right? You need think, a bloody good, sturdy knife to cut them open. Secondly, I think more people annually get cut by those clam packages than they do knives. I know, right? It's crazy. So that's number one. Secondly, I like eating healthy food. And I go buy my food at some stores. And they tape everything shut, you know? So it's, it's, it's not as simple as lifting the cover up. You got to actually cut through that tape. So 
I always make sure I got something on me that I can use. So when I'm out in polite company, like I was at my kid's soccer game, I don't bring one of my, you know, more scary looking knives. I, I bring sure. in something like a Leatherman multi-tool, right? Because it looks innocuous. I pulled it out. I cut open the package. It was a great conversation starter. Some of the ladies whose sons play soccer with my son said, oh, what's that? That looks so cute. I showed it to them and they, oh my God. I go, yeah, you should get yourself one. It's pretty cool. Leatherman's a nice little tool, right? And they all said, yeah, yeah, I'd like to get one. You know, and nobody thinks a second thought about that, right? It's it's a pretty cool thing. There's a nice yeah. sharp sharp knife on a Leatherman. Let me tell you, those things are sharp. <laughs> I'll cut myself oh. with one, still bleed. <laughs> and I think it's super, super useful there. But uh, I'll tell you another thing. Uh, in September 2017, one of my best friends was shot and killed in Toronto. Uh, he was sitting at a restaurant, and it, it, it was crazy. Some guy came up to him. It was, it was targeted, and they pumped him full of lead, four bullets. He sat at his table. He didn't do anything. I got I got depressed when that happened. I was, this man had kids the same age as my kids, you know, both sons, just like me. He was going through a divorce, so there was some tough stuff going on in his life, but he didn't deserve to be shot to death. And I just wondered, you know, it could happen to anybody. You, you, you never know, right? And I wanted to learn how to defend myself. So I, I took a course with a man by the name of Tim Larkin. I don't know if you've heard of Tim Larkin. He runs Target Focus Training. He, he used to be in military intelligence. He was he trained to be a SEAL, but his eardrum burst when he was underwater on a training exercise. He actually almost died. It was one of the things that got him interested in learning about injury and how to overcome it. So I learned how to protect myself. And not that I carry a scary knife with me all over the place, but, you know, just having a knife on me psychologically makes me feel a little bit better, so certainly in, 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 in certain places, right? I'm, I'm not carrying your blade. That would be illegal in Canada to have a blade like that strapped on, on my waist, but... You know, small, <laughs> small little pocket knife. In the end, a knife is a simple tool and one of the oldest tools known to mankind. It is. You know, there's very few uh, protective – you know, we don't even call them weapons here. But, you know, it, it's, it's rare you can have a defensive weapon that also allows you to eat, open presents, uh, open a box, you know, do your mail – open envelopes. It's a very, very versatile tool. I think most people you talk to, like yourself, if they've carried one for any period of time, uh, they almost can't live without it. You know, it's kind of like a pickup truck. Once you have one, you can't go back to a sedan. No, right? you, you, can't you, go. You, you can't. I agree. So, Actually, that's my next vehicle to buy. I've had a sedan for a while. I've been saying, I want to get me a, a nice F-150 <laughs> Raptor, but I digress. So, you know, I think knife's important, but I also think a knife's important for a, for a, for a young man or boy to have to learn how to use it to, to build a fire if he's ever outdoors, to go camping. And I think these are important skills for people to have. Uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about this, but we, we live in a day and age where the threat of terrorism, the threat of attack is very real. One of the things I read about, there's a, there's a writer by the name of William Forschin. He wrote a few books with uh, Newt Gingrich, the former um, Speaker of the House. Sure. And then he wrote a series of books, the first one of which I think was called The Day After, about an EMP attack, an electromagnetic pulse attack. And right. if something like that happened, most of us would be, would be screwed, right? It, basically, the world that we live in would cease to function. We'd need to go back to a world that hasn't existed for about 150 years without electricity, without you know, the fancy cars that we have here today. No car made after 1980 would work, <laughs> Right. And not, not that I'm thinking that's definitely going to happen, but I've, I've, I've read some stuff that Forschin put together in his novel that basically says that North America and the West are completely unprepared for the after effects of an EMP attack. So 
it'd be good for us to be able to take care of ourselves, to be to be ready. And one of the things you're going to need to have is is a knife, a knife that you can use, a knife that is powerful, a knife that's useful, something you can use to make fire. If you ever need to to be out there and and, and hunt, it's something you can use in the field to to uh, dress uh, food for yourself, to uh, to skin an animal, et cetera, et cetera. Knife's a fantastic thing. I love knives. They're great. Sure. Yeah, it, really, it really is. Like I said, it's the oldest tool known to mankind. You know, and, and you know, outside of an EMP or national emergency, folks get lost daily. I used to live in the uh, in Washington State. I was stationed there at Fort Lewis, and I think once a week we heard stories of people being lost in the wilderness, not surviving or barely surviving. As a matter of fact, I think it just happened a few days ago. They're talking about charging the guy for the cost of uh, his retrieval from Mount Rainier, I believe. But, uh, you know, a short trip to a mall on a winter day when it's very, very cold outside or a trek in the woods where you get lost, you know, an everyday pleasurable event can quite quickly turn into an emergency. You know, we uh, we had one fella who uh, was hiking, actually got hung up off the edge while he's climbing a cliff by his rifle. He was able to grab his knife, secure himself, and then cut his rifle loose. Lost his rifle, but saved his life. So, you know, it is a life-saving tool. You know, we... Uh, you look at the Western expansion in the United States, yep. you know, when, when going to the West Coast, the United States was a big, big deal. And a lot of folks didn't make it. And, uh, you know, kitchen cutlery, carbon knives with wooden handles on helped with Western expansion. It was used as an everyday tool. Small children carried them. So interesting that there's so many knife companies out in Oregon, eh? Yeah, there is. That's, uh, you know, we were told when we started our company that uh, we'd have to move to Oregon. And we said, well, why do we need to move to Oregon? We live here in North Carolina outside of Fort Bragg. You know, our home's here, our, our friends are here, our family's here. They said, well, all knives are made in Oregon. I said, well, then how the hell do we make Honda Jet out here in Volkswagens? You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know we've got some world-class heat treaters out here, some great coating companies, a lot of technology, CAD work. So uh, why out in Oregon? You know, I think that's just where it got a foothold. You know, yeah. uh, the East Coast of New York State was huge. Uh, New York and Pennsylvania is where the majority of knives were made in the early 1800s and early 1900s. Yeah, I, I think Case, uh, Case, which is a Pennsylvania-based company, uh, they make a lot of traditional type knives, the old, the old-fashioned uh, slip joints and trappers. Yeah, K Bar is 120 years old this year. Yeah, yeah. You know? where, where's K Bar out of? Olean, New York. Okay, well there you go. So there, there's still some some firms out on the East Coast, but Oregon has definitely been a place where uh, the industry's taken a foothold. There's no question. I mean, um, no doubt. So what, what what you're saying about day to day emergencies is also very true. I think it's an important thing to have, and I also think learning how to use a knife gives someone self confidence. It certainly has given me some self confidence, being able to use it for various tasks, understanding what different types of knives are, what they can be used for. And um, I've become quite the, the, the quite the knife addict. You know, I've got a collection of about thirty of them right now from different companies, and I make sure that I carry one with me every day. Uh, one that's legal, obviously, in my in my province. In case there's anyone listening from the authorities, it's it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, definitely think it's an important thing to have with you. Um, so, how did your vision for creating? Spartan blades come about. Like, what inspires you to go out and create something so unique, so iconic, and clearly some of the best, if not the best, fixed blades in the entire industry? And and that's what's attracted me to come and speak to you. By the way, 
I've always been fascinated by people who are the best at what they do. And I would say that Spartan Blades are the best fixed blades out there. I, I don't think there's another company at your level. Well, you know, I think there's a few things that drove us to push for high quality. Uh, you know, first one was in our military careers. We just, uh, you know, strove to be the very best at what we could do. We tried to be as highly professional as, as we could. And that was kind of commonplace for us. You know, they say you're special forces, but I don't think you realize it till, till you're out. <laughs> just kind of like, it's kind of like go to work forces in the morning, you know. But uh, we always strove for excellent, excellence in the military. Um, and one of the other things was when we decided to start our company, we knew uh, it'd be very difficult for us to compete against overseas uh, manufacturing. I mean, you can on get price, nice you mean. on price. Yeah. So we knew we, you know, as, as two guys starting a business in a two-story pre-Civil War mule barn, we weren't going to compete against the big guys. But we knew we wanted to do something special. So almost out of self-defense, we made the conscious decision to make incredibly high-end knives using the very best procedures possible. But we, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think one big part of business is you have to be honest with yourself. You have to ask yourself, hey, what am I good at? And what am I not good at? And what don't I know? And if you're honest with yourself and you identify those things and then target those things or create a mission to learn what you don't know or to find somebody else who does, it can serve you very, very well when you're starting a new business. We knew we needed a mentor and we knew we needed help. And we knew uh, there was a fellow named Chris Reeve oh, yeah. who uh, made the knives, a knife called the Yarbrough knife. It was the regimental knife for U.S. Army Special Forces. It was a knife they gave to the graduates when they graduated for years. You know, we called this fellow, we got his phone number, we called him, we said, hey, you know, our names are Mark and Curtis, we're retiring special forces, you make the special forces knife, we want to start a company and become knife makers, can you help us? And of course, the first thing he said is, you guys are crazy, but, you know, if, if you're sincere, why don't you come out to International Blade Show in Atlanta, meet with me, give me an idea of what you're looking to do, and then we can go from there. So we did, we, we reached out to Chris Reeve, who, for those of you who don't know who Chris Reeve is, He's won a manufacturing quality award, I think, 14, 15 times in the United yeah. States. He's like the he's apple considered of the knife be, world, right? He is. Yeah, he's yeah. Pre, he's considered to be the, the premier knife maker, and his company is the premier knife company in the world. So, uh, yeah, I have we a couple of his knives. Chris. They're great. They're fantastic and great people. We went to visit him, and he goes, hey, I think you guys got something here. Why don't you come on out to Idaho? And if you come on out to Idaho, I'll walk you through my shop for a few days, and I'll help you out. So three days later, we knocked on his front door. I think uh, his wife was a little surprised <laughs> we were there and she's going to have house guests. But, uh, you know, the, the, the Reeves took us to their factory. They walked us through how knives are manufactured. They helped us avoid some of the pitfalls. They explained to us how quality knives were made. But even more importantly, or just as importantly, they walked us through the business processes they required to get your knife to a consumer. You know, and he also gave us some great advice. He goes, listen, you'll sell some knives because you're special forces. But if you make crap knives, you're going to be the special forces guys that sell crap. You know, and, that, and that's a message he gave us early on. And I think that kind of pushed us down the route of, of, of doing the best job we could of high quality, the best steels, the best processes like heat treat, double deep cryo, physical vapor deposition as a coating for a knife, which is something they use in the firearms industry. But I think that set us on a course to strive for quality from the beginning. I think uh, we were very fortunate. So there's a lot I want to unpack out of what you just revealed to us, Curtis. The very first thing, right, is you said that 
you needed to take inventory of yourself and understand what you were good at and what you were not good at. And you got help for that. There's so many people that don't get this. So listener, when, when Curtis shares this with you, I hope he's driving it home for you because you need to understand what your genius is, is at and you need to understand where you're not a genius and you need to find people that have the genius that you don't have that's necessary to run your business. If you're a thought leader and you're listening to this, your job is simply to think it's to sell and it's to deliver your expertise. That's it. All the other stuff, all the accounting, all the customer service, all that other stuff, you're going to need to find a way to get that outsourced to a team member. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be spending a whole lot of time doing stuff you're not good at, which means your business isn't going to grow. That's really, in essence, what you're saying, isn't it, Curtis? That's, you know, that's exactly what I'm saying. Even now, after 10 years in business, we've seen rapid, rapid growth through the last few years, and we're starting to plane out a little bit. So we're now taking a, a good look at ourselves and making plans for future growth, which I, I can't talk about right now. But no, uh, of course not. You the, that's 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 trade secrets. But so that was one thing that was that was really powerful that struck me out of what you just revealed. The other thing that you just revealed is something that one of my mentors revealed to me. His name is Mark McCoy. That name may not mean anything to you, but in a moment, I'll tell you why it's a good good name for you to file away and, and learn about. Mark McCoy, in 1992, became the oldest person to ever win an Olympic gold medal at the 110-meter hurdles. He was 30 years old at the time. The next oldest person is 26, okay? Most people win an Olympic gold medal in this sport between the ages of 22 and 26. Mark won his Olympic gold medal, and he won it for a variety of reasons, but he shared a story with me about when he was young, he ran in a race where the great Ronaldo Nehemiah also ran, and Ronaldo came in first and he came in last. I don't know if you remember Ronaldo, he was a great hurdler and he played um, football for the San Francisco 49ers after his uh, hurdling career. When Mark was done with that race, he plucked up his courage because he was 18, 19 years old, and he approached Ronaldo and he said, Mr. Nehemiah, sir, I admire you. You're the best at what you do. Will you teach me what you do? Can you teach me how to be like you? And Mark thought Nehemiah was going to say, get lost, kid. And (laughs) to his great surprise, Ronaldo Nehemiah said, absolutely, take a seat. Bring your notebook. And he spent an hour and a half mapping out basically a game plan for Mark to become the best in Canada, because Mark's from Canada, right? And mm-hmm. he taught him things that Mark never knew about. He taught him things that Mark's coaches didn't know about. And here's a couple things that Mark learned from that. The first thing he learned is that if you want to learn how to do something, go to the best, because they know things other people don't know. The second That's thing right. is the true champions in life, in sport, in business, they are givers. They are not going to hoard their information and their knowledge. They're going to sit down with you as a newcomer and they're going to try and lift you up because they see something in you. They see a spark that they recognize existed or maybe even still exists in themselves. And Chris Reeve was your Ronaldo Nehemiah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, we have a policy here at Spartan Blaze. You know, we have a lot of young or bunny knife makers come by or, or folks that own small knife businesses are trying to, you know, they're just getting off the ground. And anything they ask us about how to manufacture or make a knife, 
we give them the answer. You know, we joke here all the time. There's no secrets in knife making because, you know, listen, you're going to figure out what you need to know and then you're going to move forward. And I don't want to be that guy who didn't help you, who will always be that jerk that was a roadblock. Yeah. You know, if somebody comes to you for advice and asks for it and they're willing to ask you, well, they're willing to ask somebody else. So why be a roadblock in someone's progression or career or somebody who could end up being great in your industry? Um, We just we just don't do it. Listen, God puts you here on this earth, in my opinion, and this is one of my mantras, to live, to love, to learn, to grow, and to contribute. And two of those five words are about making a difference directly for other people. That's love and contribute. And Mm -hmm. if anybody puts a roadblock in front of others, if anybody does not attempt to help those who ask for their help, I think they're just inviting trouble for themselves because there's going to be a point in time in your life going forward where you're going to need somebody's help. And what goes around comes around, right? That's right. You know, you talk, you talk about good advice. I was a, I was a young special forces trooper. I was on a, a combined exercise where I spent a few days in the woods as a sniper. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to get placed with a, a Delta Force operator. And, and wow. if I told you I could remember his name, I'd be lying to you. But he said, so, so how do you like being a sniper? I said, I love it. I, you know, I've wrapped my whole life around it. I've been a sniper as long as I can remember when I was in the infantry. It's, it's my whole life. And he goes, so do you want to be the best sniper that we've ever had in special operations? I said, yeah, I do. I said, that's what I'm striving for. And he goes, well, it's, it's, it's a lofty goal, but you're never going to get there. And I said, well, really? Why is that? And he goes, because if you do, you've wasted your time. He's going to listen. He goes, I've been, in, I've been in Delta all my life or all my adult life. Because I'm not 100% at everything, but I'm between 75 and 80% good at everything I need to do. That's a task that's required for my job. He's like, listen, become well-rounded. He goes, you're never going to be the expert or 100% at everything. So if you're going to strive for a goal, strive to be 80% at everything. And that'll make you the most well-rounded guy in your field. And you'll appear to be number one. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a little silly and a little over-philosophical but in hindsight, that was really some great advice, you know? Yeah, and, and he's a Delta Force guy. Like, those guys are, are like super ninjas, yeah. right, basically? They're, right. Yeah. His 75% is most people's 300%, right? <laughs> I mean, Yeah, yeah. You know, but he's like, he's like, be well-rounded, know a little bit about everything, be proficient at many things instead of an expert on one because you're going to end up being weaker at something else, and that's going to be how you'll be identified or, or people will know you as. So he says, and do your best to be 80%. And I thought, well, you know, well, this guy – you know, he doesn't want to be 100%. What's his problem? You know, but in hindsight, as I grew and aged and, and became a little more experienced, like, wow, what great advice. Because when you find those well-rounded guys, they, they can do incredible things. Well, we, we have a, had a joke on our team. We used to say, you know, the, the whole world is based off of 12 guys. That's why a special forces team has 12 guys. So, you know, you, you always had that one stellar guy who, uh, you know, you, you want to work with them. You want to be next to him. You want your name to be associated with them because it's going to make you look good. Then you have one guy under him who's that 80% at everything or 70% at everything. Then you have eight really good guys who you'd like to work with that would be part of a great team if you were in business or in the military. You have the one guy who's always messing up. And then you have the one guy who's screwing everybody's wife and should be in jail. Wow. And, you know, and if you take that and you apply it to most people in the world, those numbers are about right. So, you know, well, when I hear sense. unemployment's at 3%, it's like, well, that's – that's about right. <laughs> so, <laughs> that makes sense. 
But I will tell you this, from a marketing and branding point of view, you need to focus on an expertise because if you if you come across, right. especially in the world of being a service-based entrepreneur, as someone who's a jack of all trades, they're going to look at you like you're the master of none, right? So yeah. inside of what you do, you want to be known for one thing. One of my mentors is a guy named right. Matt Church. He's at Australia. He runs an organization called Thought Leaders Business School. And he said, look, an expert's somebody who knows something. And you, you can be an expert in a lot of different things, but a thought leader is someone who's known for knowing something. It's almost like having a brand. You know, if, you're, right. if your brand is, I'm pretty good at a lot of things, it's not as valuable business-wise to being known as, I am the very best at this. Like, the reason right. I came to Spartan Blades, I know you guys make folders, but your reputation's on the fixed blade slide. You know, people... Yeah look at Spartan Blades in the community out there as the very best fixed blade there is. Like, especially for uh, something that's both uh, utilitarian uh, as well as something that can potentially be used in a, you know, in a tactical or combat situation, right? And when I picked up uh, the Horkos in my hand for the very first time, I thought, wow, this is a thing of beauty. It's lightweight. It feels good in the hand. Um, it's obviously very sharp. High quality, good steel. This is something that can that looks beautiful, but you can you can put it to use. Now I've got some other great blades that are fixed blades. I've got a tops knife. It's a screaming eagle, mm -hmm. right? I used to belong to a, a men's team. We called ourselves right. the Screaming Eagles. That's why I bought it. It's a pretty cool blade. I like it. It's it's nice, but it's three times as heavy as my Orcos. You know what I mean? It's heavier tool type steel, and you know I've used it out in uh, in the woods to cut some wood to do some batoning stuff like that. And a fantastic blade. And Tops is a great company. I'll probably buy more blades from those guys. But good people there too. Yeah, yeah I, I can tell. You know, they made a lot of stuff for special forces and whatnot. But 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 I'll tell you, if you were to tell me the end of the world was coming and I could only take one blade with me, it'd be my Horcos. It'd be my Horcos, because I know that gotcha. thing is going to do everything <laughs> I needed to do. And it's going to be lightweight enough, and aesthetically, it, it looks it looks great. It looks fantastic. Not that the Screaming Eagle doesn't look great, but I think this one's at another level, if, if you will, in terms of uh, its aesthetics. And from my perspective, that's why I came and I bought a couple of your blades. Then I found out about your personal story and Mark's personal story. And I thought, wow, these guys, they sound like they're really, really cool guys. I want to interview you because I want to hear your story. I'm going to learn a lot from you. But I think my listeners are going to learn a lot from you. And because I've become a bit of a knife addict and I'm buying knives all over the place, I'm looking for guys who run great knife companies, and I want to bring them on my show to learn. So your status as the iconic knife company in fixed blades is what attracted me to you. And I found out about your folders later. Sure. Does that resonate? It does. Yeah. You know, we're always learning too. You know, you hear words like that and it's very, very encouraging, you know, but as a knife maker, somebody who's striving for excellence, there's things that knife I'd like to fix. You know, or there's, really? you know, a slight finish or, you know, you know, a, a, a certain texture on a handle. Uh, you're always striving to do best. You know, I look at some of the knives you made early on 10 years ago and it's like, good Lord, somebody bought this. <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 they love it. So, uh, you know, we're always we're always striving to do new and better things. I think once you think you know everything, you're, you're probably done. Agreed. Agreed. So, uh, so, I, so I appreciate that. No, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. So what you've revealed to us about the business end of what you do is fascinating to me as well, because you decided that you were going to go learn from the best. So 
you found Chris Reeve, you met up with him and his team and his family, you had a connection, they showed you what they did well, you brought that back, and you implemented inside your own business. It yes. strikes me that you've had some formal and informal mentoring in, in, in life and in business and specifically in the knife business. And it sounds like you know a lot of the knife ma manufacturers right now. And you guys have a bit of a peer group. One of my sayings is mm -hmm. don't do it alone. I, I tell the entrepreneurs I work with that if you try to do stuff by yourself, if you're not learning from peers, that's deadly because you're going to make mistakes and these mistakes can be fatal to your business. But if you have good peers around you, even if it's just informally, but even better if it's, if it's in a formal sense, that's going to help you avoid mistakes. And there, there's a power yeah. of the collective consciousness, right? When we all get together, all of us are smarter and better than just one of us. Uh, and I want your comments on that because it sounds to me like you have relationships with a lot of the other knife makers in the United States. You know, we sure do, you know, and I don't know if that's unique to the knife industry. If it is, it shouldn't be. The people within our niche, our price point, the type of materials we use are good friends of ours. I mean, Chris Reeve Knives, Hinderer Knives, Medford Knives. These are people I know personally. I've, I've stayed at their homes. I've shot guns with them. We've gone to dinner together. We've, we take weekend trips together. You know, people on social media will see pictures of all of us sitting together at the table. And they're like, what's going on? Is this a is this a consolidation of companies or, or why are they talking to the enemy? Um, but we learn from each other all the time. I mean, things like, you know, we call it spring theory. You know, springs are yeah, on, a, on a folding knife can be some of the most difficult things to use. And, uh, you know, so we all share the information. This spring works for that and try this spring or try this type of washer. Um, try this process. It might help you out and save you a little bit of money. We literally talk all the time. And these are people that are considered our competition. But, you know, I've always been in the mind that if you treat people right and you do good things, money's the byproduct of that. It is. So, money is the byproduct. When they say treat people right and do the good things, that's not just customers. That's in day to day life, as people in your community, and as people that should be your competitors. You know, listen, you know, the price point we're at. When it comes to high quality knives, nobody owns one. I think you've already said you have two or three and you're on your way to buying more and, and possibly from somebody else. If I, if I get a customer and he comes to me and I treat him right, I make sure he's happy, I take care of him years after the sale, he's gonna go to one of my competitors to buy a knife. So if you do good things, you treat people right, it's not just good for your company, it's good for all the people within that niche or within that, within that, that collective of people that work in the same space as you do. I agree with you 100%. Uh, I think we live in a time where it's it's more like coopetition. There's collaboration as well as competition, right. and competition's a, a very healthy thing. Uh, if 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 you see uh, this person as as your as your fellow man, as your fellow woman, and this person is someone that you can learn from and you can contribute to, only good things going to happen. So you've created a bit of a collective, a peer group. You guys learn from each other. You share best practices with one another, um, and I bet you, as a result of that, all of your businesses have grown more than they would have if you jealously tried to guard every secret. Absolutely, and you know, you talked about competition. We still compete. I mean, every year we put in knives, you know, at the International Blade Show for, you know, manufacturing quality, American-made knife of the year. Sure. Uh, so, you know, we, we still compete, but but in a friendly, professional way, you know. No, 100%. 100%. So 
Tell me a little bit about the Horcos, because I'm fascinated by the story of that knife. That, that knife is presented to a, a select group of folks that graduate from West Point on an annual basis, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's actually, that the, the whole process of that knife was uh, a fun one. My uh, business partner, Mark Carey, his daughter at the time was a cadet at West Point. And she called back to the shop. I, I was in Iraq. I was working for another uh, government agency. His daughter called him and said, hey, dad, we uh, need a knife at West Point. The guys in the combat weapons team need something they can sell to raise funds. You know, a lot of people don't know it, but the U.S. Military Academy is, isn't funded wholly by the government. Majority of their funding comes from private donations and, uh, and fundraising. So uh, Mark, I did not Skyped know that. Me. Mark Skyped me back when I, uh, on my old Skype account <laughs> at the embassy in Iraq. I was in Baghdad living in a trailer behind the embassy. He Skyped me and said, Curtis, hey, listen, we need a, a knife design for the combat weapons team at West Point. I said, okay, let me sit down and get some free time in between missions and I'll draw some stuff up and I'll scan it and I'll send it back to you, forward it to them and, and, and we'll see what they think. You know, because you know, you want to provide a design to a team like that. We've done it for other government agencies. You want to say, here's your choice of designs, one, two, three, or here's what it's going to be, because knife design by committee just doesn't work. I can get that. Yeah, in any group of, of young men or, or military, there's always four or five knife experts that want to design. So, uh, you know, I did the first drawing, sent it to Mark. He forwarded it to West Point. And he goes, here's what we're thinking. This is just a rough draft working on other designs. They said, nope, we'll take it. We love it. Wow. As <laughs> I, I like, well, I'm glad I spent a little bit of time on that one. So uh, we did it for we, we did it for them. And initially, that knife only went to uh, folks at West Point. So a lot of people refer to it as the West Point knife or the combat weapons team knife. But, you know, they're a very, very small group. And for us to, to manufacture that product, create tooling, uh, you know, we had to work out a deal, said, hey, listen, yours will have special markings, but we'll need to be able to do one and sell to the general public. And that knife, I mean, we couldn't stop making it if we wanted to. Our customers would kill us. They'd burn the building down. Yeah. Um, it just turned out to be. And, you know, and I think what's appealing about it, the cleaner a knife is, the more people like it. You know, I always joke that if you were to go to Las Vegas, take some butcher block paper, put it up on a pedestal and have people walk by down the sidewalk saying, I'm going to give you six seconds to draw a knife. And they drew it. And you took a hundred of those, superpose them over each other. It'd be something close to the Orcos. You know, sometimes clean, simple, functional is what's required and not much more. And I think that that knife kind of proves it. It really does. It is clean, simple and functional and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's something that's a very utilitarian knife. You can take it out there in the bush. You can use it. It's something that you, you, you can take a look at when it's in your hand and go, man, this, this is a beautiful knife. And it, it, it's not super heavy. It, it, it's something that has form and function going for it. And that's one of the things I, I really admire about the design. You know, well, we always joke that uh, every knife should have three things. It should be sharp. It should be pointy, and it should have a handle that interfaces with a hand. If it does those three things, it, I'm telling you, it can be the ugliest knife on the planet, and somebody's going to love it. You know, every once in a while, we'll make an ugly, an ugly purple knife that I can't stand. And my partner, Mark, will say, Curtis, we're not making them for you. You're making them for the general public. We'll that's throw it on the table at a knife show, and it's the very first one to sell. Happens oh, every my time. God, that's great. crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> so I saw a video you did with uh, Two Lamb, who uh, has become a bit of a, a celebrity. 
in a space. You guys designed the knife together, didn't you? We did. And, and, and I tell you, that whole phenomenon of two lamb becoming so famous is just, uh, we love to see it. You know, uh, it, for the, for those folks out there listening, uh, two lamb was a, a special forces teammate of ours when we were in Okinawa, Japan. Um, we were snipers and he was an assaulter, an assaulter troop. And, uh, he, you know, he got to the unit as a young E6. He's about a hundred and I don't know, 150 pounds. <laughs> never spoke, right? His dad was a special forces guy. He told him when you get to the unit, just keep your mouth shut and listen. And, you know, he was, he was a great guy still is to this day, but, uh, now he's a, uh, co-host on uh, forge and fire knife or death on the history channel yep. and trains law enforcement units all, all over the world. As a matter of fact, he was just down in Florida, I believe this weekend training a SWAT team, but he, he's, you know, he, this little skinny Asian kid that never talked is on television and putting out seminars. And we think it's, we think it's fantastic. It's great. He's a beast now. Eh? He's not 150 pounds anymore. Oh, no, no. He's a beast. And he's, yeah, he's quite a specimen. But, uh, you know, he's, you know, he posts a lot of social media pictures of our the days back when we were in Special Forces. And, uh, you know, my job as a sniper was to carry a digital camera. His job was to carry a rifle and put charges on doors and, and run through the door. And I asked him, I said, two, you know, I don't think I ever saw you with a camera when we were in the Army. Where are you getting all these pictures you're putting in social media? He's like, well, Curtis, I'm Asian. And I'm good at math. That's like, whatever. He's a great guy. He's a guy. funny guy, man. He's a funny guy. The stuff he does on YouTube is just guy. hilarious. But he's also a very, very serious martial artist. He's a yeah, and very good tell. at CQB, conducting uh, counterterrorism operations. You know, we were just happy to work with him because he allowed us to do something with a teammate, which – happened to actually be quite profitable. The knife we did with him, we cannot make them fast enough. So, yeah. so one, we're, we're happy with the sales of the knife, but more importantly, we're happy to be able to work with a teammate from our former life. You know? I, I think that's fantastic. That knife is selling like hotcakes even here in Canada, and it's uh, it's not a cheap yeah. knife. I mean, uh, your knives in Canadian dollars are $500 and up pretty much, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's a beautiful knife. He, he, he described the process that went in to you guys designing it and putting it together. And he, he's got a cool personality. One of the ways in which I get interested in, in buying a knife is I watch interviews done with the founders of the knife company. I, I, I watched an interview with uh, Matt Connable from William Henry, right? They make those oh, yeah. high-end, beautiful uh Jewelry style knives. And I, 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 as soon as I watched the interview, I said, I like this guy. I like what he's making. I got to buy me one of his knives. And I did. It's the most expensive knife I own by far. <laughs> right. And I, I loved the whole story of how he put his vision for the company together. And I sought him out. I interviewed him for the podcast. I'll email you one of the episodes because um, he's, he's fantastic. He's got a great story to tell. And what, what you guys are doing, I think, is, is beautiful because both of you are veterans. Both of you are patriots. You want to do something that is an expression of the legacy uh, of your service to the country and also something that's going to be fantastic and allow you to live your purpose as a successful entrepreneur. So for that, I salute you. And Thank you. I really, really love Spartan Blades. I love what you're all about. How'd you come up with the name? <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, you know, some folks thought, you know, we started coming in 2008 and they thought, well, that movie came out about the Spartans and must have had something to do with it. But quite honestly, it's something very different. You know, when we first started our business, we started out in a mule barn in Aberdeen, North Carolina, just outside of Fort Bragg. We uh, built a shop downstairs and an office upstairs. Uh, we decided we were going to make knives. We made three models. 
And uh, an army buddy of ours said, hey, I want, I want the first knife you make. So we went to send it to him. We didn't even understand how to use UPS or ship something in the mail, quite honestly. So we found an old MRE box, a meal ready to eat, or military meals, army gives you. We put the knife in it. We wrapped it up with green army tape, or we refer to it as 100-mile-an-hour tape. And uh, we said, well, let's jump in the car. Let's run to the post office. We'll talk to Pat, the woman who walks down there, and she'll run us through how to ship stuff on a regular basis. So we jumped in Mark's car. We were halfway to the post office, and I said, this is a kind of – this is a kind of Spartan way to do things, but we'll figure it out. And Mark said, that's it. We're going to call our, our company Spartan. He said, Spartan Eyes. I said, well, it doesn't ring. He said, how about Spartan Blades? I said, that's it. And that's the genesis of the name of our company. Oh, my God. That's um, we'll, awesome. That's you know, awesome. we always joke we're going we're, we're to make a better story about a gunfight or something, but we just never got around to it. So. <laughs> But you've come up with some really cool na- names for the various products that you've created. I mean, horkos is, is a Greek word for honor, right? Right, right. And we thought that was, you know, that was fitting for the guys at West Point. But, you know, we always joke. The hardest part of knife making is naming the knife in the sheets that they go into. There's not too many names out there for any product for that matter, whether you're making motorcycles or firearms or knives. Most names have been used so we, we kind of latched on to, to Greek names. You know, we thought Spartan. We looked at Greek mythology, and a lot of those names hadn't been used. We thought they uh, they sounded cool, and, and you could put a little bit of meaning behind them. So yeah. uh, They do you know, sound cool. Greek- That's part of what attracted me, the whole brand, in the first place. Spartan Blades, here's the Horkos, coming from the Greek word honor. I'm like, cool. Well, <laughs> my, my background's Persian. I'm, I'm, I'm Iranian originally, and uh, I, I've had this thought in my mind. i got to find a knife maker and we got we got to create something in the knife world based on old Persian designs from 2,500 years ago when Cyrus was conquering the world, uh, and 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 put some good powerful Persian names on blades because there's no Persian knives out there. goddammit. it! <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's got to change. Know, it's, it's funny you say that though, but to become an ABS master smith, you, not, you have to create a Persian type knife to be graded. Yeah, yeah. I, I so see, they call person, them Persian type knives. There, we need some Persian names, I guess. Yeah, yeah. We got to find a, a Persian guy who's got some skills at this, because uh, you know I've never tried making a knife. It's probably going to be one of the things I'm I'm going to do as as a hobby sometime in 2020. Is make my my first knife. Uh, it's probably going to suck, but um, I, I become so fascinated with the world of of knives and knife knife making that. It's starting to crystallize in my mind as a goal I need to set for myself at some point next year. And I'm going to yeah, call my knife uh, a Persian You name. see what happens when you start knife making. Anything <laughs> could happen. You end up running a knife company. So. Well, we'll see. I, I don't know about that. I, li- I like what I do. It's fun. But uh, it's um, it's something that I've had in my mind. I, I, I wanted to write uh, a book, a novel based on ancient Persia because that's something nobody's done, really. Uh, there's so mm-hmm. many novels out there about ancient uh, Greece and ancient Rome, and uh, they're wonderful stories. And I and I and, and I love the the stories and the culture from that time. But a lot of people don't know this, Curtis. But the first Declaration of Human Rights actually came from Cyrus the Great, King of Persia. He's the first ruler in ancient times to declare that human beings had freedom of uh, worship, freedom of assembly, freedom to uh, basically be free of government harassment. That was 2,500 years ago. 
you know, there's some cool stuff out there. And I, and, and I, as a, no, as a Persian, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of Persian history. There is. As a matter of fact, is. when I named Horkos, I told you when I named the Horkos, I was living behind the embassy yep. in Iraq. I was actually on the Tigris River when I named that knife. Maybe wow. I should have gave it more thought, right? <laughs> no, that's good. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. Maybe that's, that's a, that, that, that's something for a future knife design for you possibly. But I, I, I really think that, uh, <laughs> Um, what you guys have done with uh, Spartan blades and the names that you're bringing is important. I'd love to see someone do it with some Persian blades. I'll probably write a book about ancient Persia myself at some point because I think it's um, uh, rich with fascinating stories. Uh, I got to tell you, Curtis, I've really enjoyed our talk. We like to end off each and every single one of our interviews by asking you, our expert guests, for your top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on in their business or in their life. What say you? Wow, top three. Yeah. And I think we covered a few of them. And I think that the first one is, and we talked about it, is know yourself and seek self-improvement. And we talked about being honest with yourself. If you're going to go into business, do your homework. And, and the, the first homework you need to do is, is identify yourself, what you're good at and what you're not. I think we talked about that. Do the research into the industry you want to get into and be honest. If it's just simply spirit and love and idea of having a business, you may not be looking at it the right way. Reach out for help. Um, and that would be number two is, is look for a good mentor. Go to people that know what they're doing. Talk to them. Let them identify some of the pitfalls for you. Let them tell you some of the positives. And then conduct a good, thorough analysis of what you're getting yourself into. And there's people out there that can help you with that. Uh, there's organizations all over the place. There's veteran organizations that can help you do that. There's um, you know small business administration organizations that can do that. And more importantly, there's people that have already done it. I, I think one of the next things would be um, don't let fear drive what you do. I see this all the time. I talk to guys getting out of the military, you know, and these are sharp individuals, command sergeant majors. You know, they've worked in U.S. embassies. They've worked with diplomats, government officials. Uh, they've planned missions all over the world, conducted missions. You know, they're, they're very worldly people, but they know what they know. They, they hit retirement. And they get a little scared and they let fear drive them into a job that's safe, comfortable, that's going to have a regular paycheck. When I know some of these fellows could be world-class businessmen. So I, I guess my word of advice is if you're letting fear drive what you do or stop you from uh, starting a business or doing what you want, don't let fear drive it. Just go ahead and go for it. You know, roll the dice after mitigating all your risk. I'm going to introduce you to Phil Randazzo, Curtis. He runs American Dream U. American Dream U is an organization that goes to military bases all over the United States talking about how servicemen and women that are getting out of the service and wanting to create their life can go after their dreams, have the resources they need to start businesses, have the uh, support they need to get a, you know, the job of their dreams if that's what they want to do. Phil brings in speakers all over the place. And at the moment, he's funding this out of his own pocket. And I told him he, sh he should be getting some folks to, to, to sponsor this for him. But Phil's a great guy. And I think what you just said is powerful. Maybe you might want to team up with him and go to a couple uh, bases and tell your story. To some young well, there, there's several organizations that are working doing those things now. Like you said, American Dream U, uh, the Special Forces Association wants to put together a team that, that takes Special Forces guys and hooks them up with uh, angels, investors, and business Fantastic. people. Uh, 
There's a uh, impact junkies, another one to John Hopkins University. Oh, okay, I didn't know about those last two, but I think that's fantastic. Anyways, that's that's awesome. So, listen, Spartan Blades USA. If folks are interested in finding out more about your products and picking up some of them, and I highly recommend that you do. If you're interested in knives or you're you're thinking about picking up a knife, I think you definitely should pick up uh, one of the creations of Spartan Blades USA. What's the best way for them to uh, to do that? Uh, to go to www.spartanbladesusa.com or give us a call direct uh, if you have any questions or something we can help you with. We love talking to folks. Awesome. Curtis, I'm going to make sure I put that in the show notes. And listener, in listening to this interview, you can you can hear and you can see that Curtis Ayavito is the real deal. This is a man who served his country, who served the cause of freedom, and is then post retiring from the service, gone into business for himself, created an iconic American manufacturing company, one of the best knife makers on the planet. And you might be thinking to yourself, wow, that's that's amazing. His story's fantastic, but can I do it? Can I be like Curtis? Do I have what it takes? And maybe you're starting to doubt yourself. Maybe Maybe those doubts are in your head and you're thinking it's not possible for you. Here's what I have to say to you. Of course, it's possible for you. You're a child of God put here on this earth to live a purpose, a mighty purpose. You need to live that purpose. You are obligated to dare mighty dreams and live your purpose. And if you're worried and you want to find out if there's a way for you to monetize your business better or to take that expertise, the six inches between your ears and turn it into something magnificent that serves a lot of people, makes a lot of people happy, and allows you to have the kind of lifestyle that you want for yourself and your family. Go to my website, ecircleacademy.com. Go click on the button in the top right-hand corner and jump on a breakthrough success call with myself. Or you can go to my 360 platform site, which is Nikki360, N-I-C-K-Y, 360360.com, and you can do the same thing. Make sure that you take advantage of this. You deserve to live a life for purpose. You deserve to live the life that you've imagined. Don't let your fear choke off your dreams. Yeah, if you want to invest in somebody you trust, invest in yourself. 100%. Well said. Curtis, my friend, thank you for honoring us by being on the show today. I, I, I'm very grateful that you took the time. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, Curtis Ibito, and his incredible company, Spartan Blades USA, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com, check out the show notes, and to jump on a call with myself, please go to eastcircleacademy.com, click on that button in the top right-hand corner, and until that time, goodbye.